Welcome to The Fifth Kind TV. Today we are in conversation with Michael Tellinger. Michael is an investigative researcher and founder of the global Ubuntu liberation movement. His research exposes us to compelling new evidence of previous civilizations on planet Earth, and his findings challenge our very understanding of human origins. Michael's books include Slave Species of God, Adam's Calendar, Temples of the African Gods, African Temples of the Anunnaki, The Lost Technologies of the Gold Mines of Enki, and Ubuntu, Contributionism, A Blueprint for Human Prosperity. Michael, welcome to the Fifth Kind TV. Hi, Paul. Lovely to be with you. I am really looking forward to getting into conversation with you today. I find it fascinating how your research uh, joins the dots between our hidden and prehistoric past and has led you not only to think differently to the mainstream, but to live differently and to show how that might be done. And you've done that with such courage uh, in the last couple of decades. You give courage to others, myself included. So I really wanted to thank you and acknowledge you for that right at the outset. I'd love to begin in our conversation today. We're going to range across a number of subjects, but I want to begin with you in South Africa because one of your great contributions to world research has been with regard to a network of stone circles that uh, transgress the borders of a number of countries in Southern Africa. Conventional wisdom tells us they're just the remnants of some prehistoric farming community. Your research has demonstrated otherwise. And I wondered if you, we could start off by you telling us how you discovered these stone circles and what it is that you've discovered. Uh, well, thanks very much, Paul. Um, the 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 stone circles are really just a, a I guess a, a, a name <clears throat> that has stuck when I started to research them. Uh, but the the first awareness of these stone circle ruins um, go back five hundred years. Strangely enough, that's when the Portuguese first um, realized, as they came past the Cape of Good Hope from from Europe to in, towards India. When they came on land from the Indian Ocean side, especially, <clears throat> they came across a lot of these ancient ruins. And uh, even when they got to Great Zimbabwe in those days already, they um, they asked the locals, you know, who built these structures, and they were told unequivocally by the local tribes that they met that that they didn't build them; they're just occupying them, and they didn't know who built them. And that's a variation that goes back five hundred years. So um, whatever we read in modern history books about the origins of these stone circles, and it is very different from what I've just told you. Our modern historians tend to um, think that they know uh, who they, you know, where these structures come from, who built them, when they were built, why they were built, and so forth. And they ascribe them to various tribes. And that's just all absolute nonsense because we know that that is not the case from 500 years ago already. What, what I've discovered uh, when I first became aware of these ruins in 2005 or 2004, while I was writing Slave Species of God, I suddenly discovered that South Africa has got this plethora of ancient ruins that nobody knows about. And that just blew my mind. I couldn't believe that nobody's talking about it. This is, you know, this is my country. We all go out to Egypt and all over the world to look at all these ruins. 
And yet right under our feet, we have this large number of ruins. And when I say large number, at the time when I discovered these ruins, there was an estimate of about 20,000 of these ruins in South Africa. Now, that blew my mind because 20,000 is a big number already. But little did I know what the discovery would lead to that is a much bigger than num number than that. But at the time, in 2004, when I first found these papers, and it was not easy to find this, these papers and the documentation on these ruins. They were written, you know, and they were hidden away in some, some uh, uh, museum and some archives somewhere. So eventually I got hold, a hold of those papers and read this and just couldn't believe that nobody is aware of it. Nobody's talking about it. There's no photographic evidence anywhere. It was literally like a closed book. The only thing that they spoke about was 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 Great Zimbabwe, and that's pretty much it. Um, so had they so, deliberately not studied? Well, it was studied. It was studied, and a number of um, expeditions and explorations and research studies were done, excavations, uh, some very basic surface-level stuff, not in-depth and not detailed and not scientific. And I really need to draw a distinction here. Quite frankly, archaeologists should never, ever be put into the field of science. Although I'm sort of, I guess, I'm breaking my own um, uh, laws or whatever, my own definition of what the word science means. Uh, I, I often use that to, to give people confidence that you know, e even if you're a good baker, it means you're actually a scientist. If you're very good at something, very, very good at something, it means you're a scientist in that specific thing. Because science originally comes from, from the word knowledge, right? So uh, if you're a scientist, you're knowledgeable about a specific subject. But, but unfortunately, our archaeologists uh, are not scientists in the popular sense of the word they 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 undertake training and in that training are very few scientific principles that they apply uh, in the, in what what would be deemed as as mainstream scientific approach so <clears throat> it's it, when you look at the archaeological studies that have been done uh, they are very interesting and they do raise and I must give them credit that they do raise and they did raise some of the flags, the red flags that attracted me and made me pay attention to the anomalies and the problems that we have with the ancient ruins of South Africa. So for people <clears throat> who are not familiar with them, can you describe these stone circles to us and, and why it is that um, it's clear that they're not the vestige of a farming community? <clears throat> right. So... The stone circles are circular structures. The walls are made of smaller stones that range from about 10 kilograms to about 200 kilograms. And they, <coughs> they form these circular structures with very strange and irregular in, internal structures. Um, the main thing that was, that was uh, noted in 1939 in a probably up to that point, and even since then, I think that was the biggest archaeological exploration and research um, uh, effort that was made into exploring the stone circles. And that happened just down the road from me um, at some of these ancient ruins here. And they concluded, and they have drawings of these from 1939, uh, drawings of these stone circles that cover all the mountains. Not all of them, just a few in the area that they studied, but the stone circles go much further than that. Uh, and um, 
and they have drawings of them. And you can see in, in the drawings very clearly that some of the drawings have no doors and entrances. And some of them do have entrances in some of the walls. And, uh, and that is critical because in that 1939 report, which is quite a, it's about a 40-page report, they make it very clear that the original structures have no doors and entrances. And that is a very important consideration because that immediately excludes the fact that the structures were built by people as dwellings or dwellings for people or cows or other animals. Because yeah. if you're not going to put doors or entrances in them, then clearly it's not meant to be a habitational place. And, uh, and that became a very important uh, shift in my thinking about these structures uh, and a consistent um, it's a consistency that you find with, with all the ancient stone circles. The, the original ones, and we find many of those uh, that are still covered by soil and sand. Some of them have been exposed and been exposed, and then some of them have been completely exposed. And you can still see uh, the original walls as they were built with no doors and entrances. It's like a closed, closed loop. It's spectacular. And that and that's when we started to measure the weird anomalies uh, with special electronic equipment. But uh, I, I think you wanted to say something? Yes, I, I want to come to the anomalous properties of these uh, circles a little bit later and what, what the function of them might have been. I just wanted to clarify how enormous this network is because it, tra it, uh, it overflows the boundaries of a couple of countries, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, it's unquestionably the largest cluster or concentration, and I call cluster of ancient ruins anywhere on earth. It covers probably one third of South Africa um, and pretty much most of Zimbabwe. It's, it's spread, it spills over to, if you're looking at the map, it spills over uh, to the west of us, northwest of us to Botswana and to the east of us into Mozambique. And then all the way through, through Zimbabwe, north across the Zambezi River into Zambia and uh, and tanzania and it's it, it's just it's just huge i'm not sure where it ends it's quite i wouldn't be surprised if originally this went all the way up the nilotic meridian all the way up to egypt that actually would not surprise me and i've never said this before it's the first time that i've actually making this kind of insane uh, statement or an idea but i would not be surprised if you followed this and you're able to remove the bushes and the trees and the vegetation you'd probably find that these circles go all the way up to Egypt. And simply the scale of it suggests that we're looking at something that is the vestige of a civilization. It's not just one locality that's built something. There is a knowledge base and a technology and a culture that was enormous, produced what we're looking yeah. at now. And that's, that's a point of intrigue right away. I wanted to ask how it relates to Adam's calendar, and if you could tell us uh, a little bit about what Adam's cal calendar is, how it relates. Adam's calendar is pretty much the flagship of all these ancient ruins. Adam's calendar is uh, is a working sun calendar. It's it's now recognised as the oldest working sun calendar on Earth. Uh, it's it's uh, it's a originally the the structure was circular. Uh, it's about um, it's probably about uh, 20 meters across, or yeah, about 20 meters across. And um, <clears throat> it's um, 
a circular structure originally, but it's so broken that it's difficult to, to see it. But if you look on Google Earth, you can still see the circular nature and the original structure of it. And at the center of it are these two stones that face each other. And these two stones are literally like electromagnetic plates. Okay, now they vibrate, they give off energies and frequencies and electromagnetic fields and magnetic fields. And uh, so Adam's calendar is much more than just a sun calendar, but but it is structured to actually be a sun calendar so you can see the passage of the year as the sun sets every day. Uh, you can see the sun move from the, from the, the summer solstice here. So there's two stones. This stone casts a shadow on this stone if the sun sets on this side. It casts a shadow on this stone. And on this edge, if the shadow is on this edge, that's you've reached the summer solstice. And then the shadow starts to move as the sun moves back towards winter. The shadow, um, uh, you can tell the day of the year and uh, the time of the year uh, by where the shadow is as the sun sets. And then the shadow moves across from the one edge to the other edge. And when it reaches the other edge, you've reached the winter solstice. And then it stops and it comes back. So this is a spectacular achievement. And uh, I'm not sure why they did this, why they built this. But um, because the, the, it's the, the sun calendar aspect of it is just a built-in feature. It is not the main reason why the calendar exists. Because the calendar itself is actually a very powerful machine, energy-generating machine. And uh, I don't know if you want to talk about it now, but... Um, just preempting this because it's a it's a very powerful machine. It's a toroidal uh, toroidal uh, energy generating device that is just so powerful it boggles the mind. Uh, and I say this because I know this because we've measured it. I don't imagine it is. I know it is. Yes. Cultural questions around it though, because straight away that orientation connects it with megalithic structures all around the world that are oriented for solstices, uh, around the movements of the stars. And it's just curious that this, these previous civilizations that we don't know much about all had that in common. You about uh, Mesopotamian narratives uh, that talk about the Anunnaki, uh, who we believe were ancient ET colonizers. How does that relate to what we're looking at here? Because there's a connection possibly between the technology this represents and ancient gold mining. How does all this fit together? It sounds like uh, a cocktail. Yeah, it, it is all one connected body of information and body of activity. Uh, the circles, the stone circles and Adam's calendar uh, are unquestionably the making of the Anunnaki or the Anuna gods, as they are referred to in the Sumerian texts, in thousands and thousands of clay tablets. It's not something that you find in one or two clay tablets, as some people still might think. The Anuna gods are the central figures, the central characters in pretty much most of the Sumerian writing and most of the Sumerian clay tablets. There's always a ref reference to the Anuna the Anunnaki and how they controlled humanity and, and obviously how they created humanity. And it's all connected to ancient gold mining and, uh, and the, the generation of energy, uh, gold mining, and uh, the obsession with gold that the Anunnaki had that we seem to have inherited, this obsession with gold. And that's a very important connection to be made, that 
humanity's obsession. Why do we use gold as human beings? It has very little purpose to us other than in technology, but that came that only came very recently. But in ancient times, it was just like this very valuable piece of shiny metal that very few people had access to, and the kings and the, the lords always hogged it and st- took it from everybody, and it always belonged to the gods. Whenever you go back in ancient times, and uh, the Europeans arrived uh, <clears throat> while they were colonizing the world in the late 1400s and early 1500s, wherever the Europeans arrived and they found ancient civilizations and local tribes with huge amounts of gold, pretty much all over the world, the ancient tribes had gold when the Europeans arrived there. This is a spectacular thing. And when they asked them, who does the gold belong to? The answer was always, the gold belongs to the gods. And that was a a feeble excuse, strangely enough, that the Spaniards used, well, if the gold isn't yours, we're just going to take it. Uh, And they did. Uh, And, of course, the Spanish had had gone looking for it. Uh, In South Africa, there is evidence uh, that's been found of prehistoric gold mining when I say prehistoric, what kind of dates are we looking at for those evidences and how does that relate to the dating of the stone circles? Because you've done some really cutting edge research into how to date the circle. I wonder if you could tie those things together for us. Well, the oldest official mine on earth is just down the road from us, an hour and a half. Uh, it's actually just across the border in Swaziland. But obviously, when that mine was created, there were no borders here. So we go there quite often on the tours that I do, the sacred sites tours and the journeys that we take uh, throughout Southern Africa and all these amazing places. Um, it's called the Nguenya Mine. And, uh, and that mine is officially dated by mainstream archaeology. So you can imagine these guys are really pushed to the limit of their, I think, capacity of allowing this mainstream archaeology to go this far back. It's dated officially a thousand years. They were mining specularite, they were mining gold, and they were mining some other minerals there as well. Uh, that's the big question. And um, <clears throat> But unfortunately for, for current archaeology, the guy that discovered that mine, uh, Peter Beaumont, um, South African archaeologist who's since died, uh, he was uh, probably one of the very few out-of-the-box thinkers and slightly more spiritually connected because he's the guy that started to understand the Bushman rock art, the Bushman paintings, and how the Bushman shamans would go into trances and and connect to the spirit world and so forth. Not not all archaeologists are that that way, uh, wired that way. And when Peter Beaumont first discovered that, um, it's called the Lion Cavern, and it's not a. It's a. It's a small little mine. Uh, it's a tiny little hole, really, in the side of a mountain. There were the mine where they were mining the specularite. But <clears throat> there, he discovered uh, under layers of of sediment that he believed was more than a hundred thousand years old. So he originally said that this mine was more than a hundred thousand years old, but that was not ever published. But you do read it, and it is available in some of the interviews that he did with the media about it. But that's what it was not what was originally put out as the age of the mine, and it just shows so you how they manipulate, manipulate, and interfere with with uh, with the archaeologists' findings and and evidence. Yeah. They just change it. Indeed. That throws a spanner into the works immediately for our conventional timeline for Homo sapiens. We, we were only supposed to have been this smart for about 10,000 years, so 
that date, 100,000 years ago, is an anomaly. (laughs) And the work you've done on the, um, you've dated the stone circles by analyzing the the patinas, haven't you? The the cuts that have been made in situ. Where did that lead you? Yeah, look, the stone circles are, the, the, any, any, any time you work with stone, it's very difficult to determine the age because, you know, stone doesn't really age. They do claim that they have some radioactive dating processes and techniques, but it's all just hocus pocus stuff. It's like, you know, you pick, take a stone from this mountain here, you take it over there and you manipulate it, you use it, you carve it or you do something to it and and things change. So the magnetic alignments change and so forth. So uh, it's very difficult to date stone when you're do- dealing with stone ruins unless you have organic matter uh, that is somehow connected, inextricably connected to the ruins that you can date. But that becomes a problem because carbon dating is now a problem and... Uh, and so it's just you have to start using as many deductive um, considerations as you possibly can. You have to look at everything through through the finest little microscope to try and analyze what's going on. Are there any indicators or clues that suggest the, the age of this? And that's pretty much what I've been doing for 13 years now among the stone ruins in Adam's calendar and South Africa and Zimbabwe and what I can tell you is that I keep pushing the date further and further back. When we first discovered Adam's calendar, or when Johann Heiner uh, re- accidentally rediscovered Adam's calendar in 2004, and he was trying to share that information with the South African Archaeological Society and, and, uh, and so forth, the universities, nobody was paying attention. Nobody even wanted to give him the time of day to come and look at it. They just assumed he was nuts. And that's a huge disgrace. Um, and it just shows you the kind of character that we're dealing with here with these academic institutions. It is a disgrace, and they should be ashamed of themselves. Um, and uh, then then he met me, and everything changed. And so I started to spread the information about this. It's very obvious. It's, it's built very consciously. Like you mentioned, it's aligned to all the cardinal points, uh, north, south, east, west. Uh, it's it's got solstices, uh, equinoxes, alignments. It's got the, the calendar itself that works absolutely perfectly uh, from solstice to solstice. And um, and when we first discovered this, the one weird thing that there were two very strange things about Adam's calendar uh, is that it aligns with the rise of Orion uh, on down on the on the eastern side of the the rise of Orion in the east. Uh, and that is that. That's where we have the the fallen um, stone, which 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 I call the Horus stone. It's a beautifully carved shaped stone, a nice fat belly, and then a nice neck like a Horus bird. It looks exactly like a Horus bird. And if you lift it up in the position that it fell, next to it are three other stones. One of those three stones is beautifully carved into a shape like a very sharp point. Um, the others are broken and they less uh, they're less impressive. But if you lift them up, it looks like Horus is, is looking directly at these three stones. And uh, and those stones line up with the rise of Orion in the east at certain times of the year. And this is not a coincidence. you know. So now we have a repetition of the Horus um, looking at uh, Orion, which is Osiris, Orion, Osiris. There's a connection there. And this is connected to Egypt immediately. Not only do we have this connection to Egypt now, where we have Horus and Orion and Osiris, but we also have Adam's calendar 
Great Zimbabwe and the Great Pyramid of Giza all connected on the 31 degrees east longitudinal line or what's often called the Nilotic Meridian. So there, there's an incredible connection between Adam's calendar, Great Zimbabwe, and the Great Pyramid of Giza. And what have they all got to have in common? Ancient gold mines and ancient mining civilizations, gold mining civilizations. And people often forget that Egypt was a gold mining civilization. <coughs> and uh, and the, 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 okay. the, other, the other amazing thing, though, Paul, is that um, when we did, a, uh, when we did um, uh, an, an analysis, a, a land survey of the, of the site, the north, south, east, west alignments are out by three and a quarter degrees uh, anti-clockwise. And that is just uh, that is just unacceptable because these guys were so advanced, they, they would not have made a mistake. So the only conclusion I can reach from that is that whoever built it, it looks like the Anunnaki were the architects for other reasons that we can go into, um, just mind-blowing reasons. And... Um, when they built it, the orientation of the world and the true north-south alignment was different from where it is today. Because this is not magnetic north that we're measuring. We're measuring true north, the North Pole, the true north. And that is impossible because the axis of the, of the Earth, as far as we know, hasn't shifted. Or is there an axis? So it brings up a whole bunch of questions and huge question marks uh, because... When Adam's calendar was built, north-south alignment was not where it is today. Now, your research has picked up on some really interesting properties that these structures have, things to do with temperature, sonic properties that suggest that what we're actually looking at is some kind of an energy grid. Can you tell us a bit more about that and, and how that relates to uh, mining and its role in this prehistoric civilization. Yes, um, the, the stone circles themselves are very interesting uh, in structure and shape. And why is every stone circle completely unique? There are no two stone circles that are the same. Uh, and that boggled my mind right in the beginning. Uh, so in, in late 2007, early 2008, I started to uh, pick up and collect these elongated stones. Uh, I started to call them stones that ring like bells. And you can go on YouTube and watch me ring some of these stones. And they literally, if you close your eyes, it sounds like metal, not like a stone. And it always catches people by surprise. So I started to collect these strange tools and artifacts I was picking up everywhere, these elongated stones. And those are normally the ones that ring so beautifully. But... Um, uh, I couldn't make any sense of it. Uh, why are these stones these weird shapes? And I couldn't understand why, but I just knew that they rang beautifully. And then I discovered that the stones in the stone walls of the stone circles themselves also have acoustic properties. They all ring like bells. And coming from a musical background and studying sound and understanding sound, cymatics, the shape of sound, and cymatics is the term for the study of sound manifesting into physical form, right? Mm -hmm. Like the primordial source code of creation. That's what sound really is. And uh, when you, when I realized that the stone circle, that the, that the stones ring like bells, and we started to measure sound frequencies and electromagnetic fields 
coming out of the stone circles, coming out of the walls of the stone circles, very high sound frequencies from, from about 14 gigahertz, right? This is not something to be scoffed at. This is just incredible. From, I think, or 11 gigahertz all the way up to Adam's calendar, beyond 375 gigahertz of sound frequency that these things generate. It's, it's unheard of in nature. And, um, and then the electromagnetic that, fields that range from – go ahead. At certain um, pitches, that would be, what, the volume of a jet taking off? Oh my God! Uh, you know, any anything in gigahertz is just is is just very very powerful. It's 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 like modern day cell phone towers. So we we're not dealing with 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 low tech here. We're dealing with very high tech, and and then the electromagnetic fields that we started to measure in there of you know up to up to four. I think the highest we measured in the stone circles is four hundred and eighty megahertz, and then at Adam's calendar it went up to like two thousand megahertz and it varies every time we go back and measure it with with different equipment because i don't always have the same equipment i just don't have the funds so i have to rely on people and they come and arrive here and they have special equipment we're going to do the measurements we record it and then they go away and then you know until somebody else arrives with slightly different equipment but what we've discovered is that the frequencies emitted by the stone circles keep changing what tells me is that the stone circles are alive they're not static they are working still today. But the most important thing about this is that uh, once we realized, once I realized that the stone circles give off these energies, these frequencies, it suddenly made sense why they are built like that and the shapes that they take on. Because it suddenly became very obvious that every stone circle is just a representation of the sound front of the ground at that specific point. So the stone circle itself takes on a cymatic shape or a cymatic pattern of that sound frequency at that specific point. And because the surface of the earth is not even, then you've got different sands and stones and quartz densities and so forth under this in the in the soil underneath it. The sound, the primordial sound frequencies of the earth, the earth rings like a bell all the time. It never stops ringing. And these frequencies make their way to the surface of the earth. And there, these guys knew exactly how to tap into those frequencies coming out of the, the earth, the, the, the soil. And they built the stone walls along the cymatic pattern of that particular area. And cap in, by doing that, they capture the sound frequencies coming out of the earth. Those sound, that sound then goes into the walls of the stone circle. The sound moves around the walls and it amplifies itself because that's what it does because it's in, an, in a sacred geometric pattern. So it amplifies itself. And that moving sound then creates magnetic fields. And moving magnetic fields create electromagnetic fields. And what I've just described to you there is literally describing the fundamental basics understanding of the manifestation of something out of nothing or as we read in the first passage of the bible that god said let there be light there was nothing and the spirit of god moved over the waters and then god said there be light that's what these guys are doing they were turning sound like the word of god word of the creator they were turning sound into very powerful energy machines and now on top of that it's not just one machine, not just one stone circle. We're dealing with more than 10 million of these stone circles. So we're looking at a 
incredibly vast, huge energy generating machine that covers more than two countries in Southern Africa, generating unimaginable amount of energy. The question, where they're using the energy for? That's the question. I mean, it's a phenomenally sophisticated technology. It represents a very advanced civilization to know how to tap that. What were they using it for? Well, at this stage, there are a number of um, theories. And again, you know, my theories change based on the evidence that I have. And uh, again, I, I, I'm not sure if I mentioned it already. Um, short-term memory loss here. Um, I do. I like to say that I do what the guys in CSI do. I follow the clues and the evidence. And I base my conclusions on the clues and the evidence that I have. And that's what it is. Until tomorrow or next week, when I find new evidence and new clues, then I change my perspective and my views on what I thought before. So what I know today and what I think today is vastly different from what I thought 10 years ago. And that's how everybody should work with when you make when you work in the field of discovery. You can't get stuck on a theory or idea that's 10 years old or 20 years old, or in some instances, 100 years old, like the atomic model, for example, that they still teach us in physics. It's just a spectacular disservice to all of humanity. They're still teaching the same bogus BS atomic model in physics at school and at university. And this is why they can't make heads or tails of, of the, the nature of reality and how things work. But I'm digressing now. So you've got to move for the flow and the dis new discoveries to make more sense of things. So it's a very sophisticated, as you say, a very high advanced knowledge of uh, the use of sound and resonance and how to convert sound and resonance into a useful tool uh, and technology for pretty much everything they did. So originally, I thought that all these stone circles were generating energy for the gold mining that they were doing. And I'm still, I'm still on that thought. It's, it's, it's obviously the first thing that comes to mind because there was such a large-scale gold mining going on here. It boggles the mind. I, th I don't think – I probably can't even imagine how big it is. And my imagination of that is much bigger than most other people at this stage. But the, these Anunnaki were mining the earth. They were mining such vast areas of the earth for gold. We can't imagine it because in our perspective, in our perception, there's not enough money to set up all these gold mines because, you know, we use money. And if we don't have enough money, we won't be able to set up the gold mines. Well, they didn't have money. They didn't use money. They just did stuff and they did it because that's what they did for their civilization and their, their, their um, species to thrive. Um, so gold mining, absolutely. Energy for the gold mines, absolutely. No question about that. But there is another twist here because this is such a vast engineering undertaking. We could never construct anything like this today. In the world today with all the engineers, all the architects, uh, we couldn't do this because, first of all, we don't have the technology. We don't know where to put the stone circles and how to tap into those frequencies of the earth. Well, I guess there are people that would be able to do that, but they're certainly not in the mainstream. And um, so this is such a vast undertaking with more than 10 million of these structures all connected to each other with these channels. And all those stone circles that are connected to each other, they then sit in what I call the spider's web. And the spider's web is really just a network of terraces, agricultural terraces that from the air look like spider's webs. 
that hold the stone circles connected to each other by these channels. It's an integrated network that covers an entire southern, the southern African continent. It's an unimaginable architectural and construction feat and achievement. So, so they must have done this for some very, very serious reasons, because this is a very serious construction. So I'm beginning to think, and I have been thinking for the past few years now, that it the, the original idea must have been a little bit more than just... And I'm beginning to see evidence that that they may have used the energy generated by the stone circles to actually manipulate the the atmosphere, manipulate the climate, geoengineering, manipulating the climate and possibly creating uh, a climate that was conducive for their for their stay and for doing the work that they were doing. Uh, and and yeah. that yeah, it's, it's it's looking more and more like that that the stone circles are actually a very very large. Um, geoengineering, uh, terraforming, climate control machine. So they're there to create a certain climate that supports uh, everything they were doing. Does that relate in some way to um, the role of the Abzu in the Sumerian narrative? Are you talking about the Abzu? Yes. Yes. So the, the Abzu is a, a, a well-recognized term for in the Sumerian texts for this place that is there's quite a bit of controversy about it and an argument about what the Abzu is or where was it or what is it but um, there are enough uh, um, references to the Abzu being where the gold came from for me to assume that the Abzu is the place where they were mining gold and uh, and then they also they differentiate between the, the Abzu and then the deep Abzu which I've come to uh, understand as being Zimbabwe, which is closer to, to Mesopotamia, where the Anunnaki were, were settled. Uh, so Zimbabwe was the Abzu, and then the deep Abzu was further away, further south, which was probably most likely the reference to South Africa, which, which it would be today. So we have the Abzu and the deep Abzu that is often referenced in the Sumerian text, and that is where the gold came from. That's where the largest gold operations were set up by the Sumerian supreme entity or being called Enki, uh, deity. He was in charge of all the gold mining. He was in charge of all the activity. He was the supreme Anunnaki dude on earth and one of the supreme Anunnakis everywhere. And um, and he pretty much ruled the roost. Uh, there's been some confusion about, you know, his so-called brother or Enlil, and we can go into that if you want to later. But Enki was the guy that was running the mining, the, the mining construction, and he was also the guy that was then tasked when the Anunnaki couldn't handle all the mining activity, they just were, didn't want to do the mining and the hard work anymore. That's when they decided to, to clone a new species and suddenly humanity makes its appearance. Indeed. Now, I, I discovered uh, this history, this prehistory, through studying <laughs> the book of Genesis and doing some translation yes. work in it. Uh, I, I did some work with the word Elihim and started reading those stories differently with that word in the plural. And I started recognizing the stories and I realized the, this was a retelling of the Sumerian stories. So that was my way into this topic. How did you yeah. find out about the uh, Mesopotamian narratives, the cuneiform 
tablets. How did you discover that? And was that all part of your uh, knowledge base before you discovered the stone circles? Yes, uh, I'd known about the Sumerian tablets and Sumerian texts since I was about 30 years old. So I first, that's when I discovered, actually I was 30 at the time, I discovered the writings of Zachariah Sitchin. And uh, overnight, I just, you know, got stuck in these books and I read all these books that were available at the time. And that opened my mind to a whole new history. And suddenly realizing that what we read as mythology uh, and that is poo-pooed by mainstream academia is actually the real history of humankind and the real history of the world. And they keep trying to hide that and trying to lock it up and throw it away and discard it. But unfortunately, that hasn't worked. More and more people are waking up to this. And when you start looking at mythology, you also start seeing the connections between the mythological stories and the stories in the Bible. And you start realizing, oh, my God, the stories in the Bible are a lot closer to the truth than I ever imagined. And you start seeing the connections between the stories of, of creation in the Sumerian texts, of the creation of Adam or the birth of Adam and the creation of Eve in the Sumerian texts, when they say that Eve was, you know, Adam was first created and then they needed to procreate on their own. So they took his essence to create his female partner. This is the Sumerian texts. It's the same story as you find in the Bible, you know, taking um, Adam's you, rib you, and creating uh, Eve. Yeah. When you go to the Mesoamerican narrative, the Popol Vuh, the Mayan tradition, it says very uh, unapologetically what you just said, where the, uh, the visitors, the colonizers say, let us make um, avatars for ourselves to do the work for us and bring us our food. Uh, and that seems to be a key uh, aspect. Uh, when we're talking about prehistoric mining, we know our ancestors, that people who were the same shape as us and build as us were here 200,000 years ago, not smart enough to build their own cities or to farm, but apparently smart enough to work in someone else's mine. And uh, that's yes. the picture that uh, seems to be emerging. Um, something I've forgotten earlier, though, was uh, again to do with the amazing properties of, of these structures. We've got something that can produce phenomenal energy, may be sufficient to manipulate weather systems, may be sufficient to power all the operations, transportation, mine, whatever that people were doing who were there at that time. But as you've toured around these, you've discovered, and perhaps we shouldn't be surprised when we're looking at sonic vibrational energies, that there's, uh, there's a healing power to what happens in these stone circles. Can you tell us a little bit about that, how you discovered that? Yeah, that's, again, another wonderful, you know, unexpected discovery and a surprise that when it first surfaced in about 2010, uh, people started to tell me that they experienced some sort of a healing while they were in the stone circles, whether it was a sore back or a sore knee or uh, or a, whatever, a headache or uh, whatever it was, you know, muscle pain. And, and I kept getting these this feedback from people that they, you know, before they went in, they had this pain and now it's gone. And I thought, okay, well, it's just a coincidence. And it just kept happening over and over again. And, I, you know, you, you ignore it because you just – it doesn't enter your reality. But at the time, I already knew that the stunt circles were, were energy generated. So um, I should have paid more attention to it, but it did come later. But what is fascinating is that uh, many of your listeners will know that um, sound heal all disease. I mean, 1931, uh, Royal Raymond Rife is probably the most famous 
healer and doctor and medicine that that um, that actually cured people of full-blown cancer, literally at will. I mean, the, the stories of what he was doing with his sound frequencies uh, in 1931 and before that and after that, I believe, until he got completely ruined by the American Medical Association and the f- big pharma companies. Um, he he was hailed as the guy that found the cure for all disease. In 1931, they held a, a banquet and in his honor to to give him an award and 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 you know call him the guy that found a cure for all disease. And this is not a a small thing. And so once we realize, and again in my lectures, I go into the details, I go into the science and the physics of this in as much detail as you want, because sometimes people don't want too much detail, but if they want, I'll take them right down to the quantum mechanics explanation of all this stuff. But ultimately, sound is the primordial source code for everything. When I say sound, I mean resonance and vibration that we experience in this density as sound. And so that is a primordial source code for everything. So if sound can manifest everything in our reality, in the universe, everything comes from sound and resonance. That means that you, we can do everything with sound. And again, in my lectures, you can go online and watch my YouTube videos. I go into detail what you can do with sound. And there is no end, no limit. One of them is obviously healing. You can heal all and cure all disease with sound and resonance and frequency. And that's, uh, that's is in essence, what's happening here. So whether you like it, whether you know it or not, when you enter the stone circles, uh, your body and the trillions of cells in your body are exposed to the frequencies that are emitted by the stone walls of the stone circles. Now, what frequencies are these stone circles emitting? They're emitting good frequencies because they're emitting natural earth frequencies, the frequencies that should be harmonizing with the cells and the organs in our bodies and our entire body. Keep in mind, our bodies are filled with trillions of cells and those cells and have to vibrate together in sympathetic, harmonic coherence. If they don't, if they're not in sympathetic vibration, they're in dissonance. If they're not in coherence, they're in dissonance or in disease. And if they're in disease, they're in disease and you get sick. So if our bodies and the trillions of cells in our bodies and the organs, if they're not vibrating in coherent harmonic resonance with everything else in our body and then again, with the the earth below our feet and the environment around us, then we're constantly in a state of dis-ease or dissonance. So now when you enter the stone circle, you're entering an environment that is amplifying, dramatically amplifying the natural frequencies of the earth. It's just pumping it into the air around you. So your trillions of cells in your bodies are automatically exposed to the good frequencies, the frequencies that the earth is pushing up, not cell phone towers or cell phones or laptops or all the other electronic crap that is destroying our cellular structure and killing us. So whether you like it or not, whatever disease you might have will start to repair itself because the cells in your body will start to align and become coherent with the earth and coherent with each other. Now, what's even more interesting, We have actually now discovered which stone circles have an effect on which part of your body. We now know that this stone circle is good for your liver and your and your kidneys, and this one is good for your heart. This one is good for your DNA. This one is good for your brain. That's how much research we've done. It is quite spectacular. What's the most dramatic experience of healing that you can uh, report? 
Oh, that was uh, actually the very first Sacred Sites tour that I did in 2014. A very wealthy couple from Vermont came out here. They they were very, very um, uh, reserved with the knowledge, with the information they shared about who they are and why they're here. We just know that they, they were very wealthy and and um, and uh, they came the first year and then they came back again a year later on a second tour with me. And um, then in December 2016, when I went to Vermont to do a lecture on Ubuntu and One Small Town Contributionism. They came to meet me, to see me, and the woman uh, especially came to see me and said they came especially to thank me for saving their life, saving her life. And I went, wow, wh what is it? Why? why what, what did I do? And she said, well, it was the Stone Circles and Adam's Calendar and Great Zimbabwe, the energies in the Stone Circles that cured her from full-blown cancer. She was going to die. They came to South Africa on their last trip. Uh, together and she believed that when they got back to the USA she only had like six months left to live and when they got back she went for a checkup and the doctor said what have you been doing and she said oh we went to South Africa to visit some you know ancient sites and he said well whatever you're doing your cancer is receding dramatically so do more of that so that's why they came back the next year and when she went back her cancer was gone so that is the most extreme extreme form of healing that I've heard. Uh, actual feedback where the people went out of their way to tell me about it. I, I love how you describe that because people might think of healing practices that involve uh, tones, uh, humming, chanting, gongs, <coughs> musical bowls, all designed to immerse a person in a certain frequency or even architecture is a person in a certain frequency having yeah. the planet itself hum over us so that we're yes. in resonance with the planet that we live on. I think that's a, a, a beautiful way of describing it. Uh, there's a, another aspect uh, I want to ask you about because there are so many ways in which this research upsets our story of humanity and where we came from. When I went to school, the story I was told about human origins is that we evolved very gradually. There's a single line of progress that you can trace as we get more and more sophisticated to become us. That picture's really been very much complicated and somewhat blown out of the water in recent decades because we've discovered that we have Neanderthal heritage. We've discovered the Denisovans. We've uh, discovered the uh, hobbits of Indonesia. Homo floresiensis, and of course, in the past there was a, a spate of finds in the 19th century of giant hominids, and so the the picture is really confused now, and it looks like there was a great deal more going on in the ancient history that produced us and others, and you've made some fossil finds in the area that, that speak into that. Um, whole subject could you tell us something about that yes uh, so in 20 uh, january 2018 was a real turning point uh, that sent this research into a whole new direction that nobody could have expected certainly not me because <clears throat> that's when i realized that all these strange and weird tools and artifacts that i've been collecting and especially the elongated stones the stones that ring like bells were not actually stones, but they were actually fossilized, petrified body parts. 
humanoid, reptilian, who knows, possibly Anunnaki, um, who knows what other beings, but from creatures, small, um, look like little dinosaurs or little you know, reptile, reptilian type of creatures to very large creatures with huge teeth and huge body parts that some of them are too big for me to bring into the museum. And these lie scattered right across the mountains here. And that's when the, everything changed. And, and not only did, did everything change, it also scrambled the timeline as to how things happened here and became even more confusing. And this is why I tell people, if you think you know the human history, just take the textbooks that you've read and throw them out of the window because everything has been rewritten here. There's a whole history here that we know absolutely nothing about, an ancient history, and even a more recent history. This It's not just ancient history. This stuff goes back in Southern Africa, goes back you know as, as far as 10,000 years, and that's not really that far back. A thousand years ago, there was still Anunnaki mining gold here. That's how, how crazy it is. So I in January 2018, I suddenly realized that the stones that I was walking on for 11 years were actually petrified body parts, and it was this stone here. Can you see that? Wow. It's this stone that did it. And uh, once again, I said, why is this stone this weird shape? Uh, we were out in the up mountain with a group of people that were here on my research expedition program. And I picked the stone up and I said, why is this stone this weird shape? And I put it down on the wall there, one of the stone walls. When we, when we come down this mountain, I will know what this is about. And lo and behold, as we came down half an hour later or so, I took one look at that stone, even from a distance lying there on the stone wall that I put it for me to find on the way back. And even from a distance, I went, that's not a stone. That is a rib. And suddenly, my life and everything changed. You can clearly see this is a, a petrified, fossilized rib. It's got that lovely curvature. And uh, it gets thin towards the tip of the rib. This is mostly just bone right at the top here. There's hardly any muscle or meat on it. And over here, there's still some remaining muscle and meat on it. You can see it clearly at the back here. And at the bottom here, you can see how the rib gets wider. Where at age, you can clearly see where, where there were other ligaments and all the, 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 the stuff that, that holds ribs into, into the rib cage. Some of the fatty and, and sinewy stuff is still attached to it, but it's all turned to stone. So we have a beautiful petrified rib of some creature whether it was humanoid or animal I don't know but uh, it is a beautiful example and this has become one of the prime examples of these fossils and right next to it was another rib uh, this is a slightly different rib this is higher up it's probably high, higher up the the uh, anatomy the the skeleton uh, whatever creature it was um, we, we don't know you can see there where it was attached to the to to the uh, to the rib cage or to whatever it was attached to, you see the bone going into it. You can see the meat on it, um, the muscle here. But the 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 weirdest thing is actually this. Can you see those cuts there? Yes. Right. So somebody was eating this rib. Those are not erosion or accidental. Those are very very uh, distinct 
cuts and somebody was very specifically eating this or cutting it because these are too perfect to, to happen accidentally or via erosion. So somebody was busy eating the spare rib when it was covered or, or, or discarded. Somebody ate it and that was, they had enough and they threw it away. And that, th this rib then ended up in the, in the mud when the flood came and turned to stone together with the other rib around it. So what we have, we have, um, well, not we, I have in the museum hundreds and possibly th more than a thousand examples of fossilized, petrified body parts of all kinds of creatures. We have hearts, we have teeth, we have fingers, we have jaw bones. There are skin and flesh body parts of reptilians with reptilian skin. Uh, goodness, there's just so much. We have claws, claws and claw marks. And here's a great example of a little leg. This is a leg of a little creature. Now, if you're walking up the mountain, you saw this lying there, it would just be a stone. But unfortunately now for me, I no longer see stones. I see body parts everywhere. If you take a close look at this, you realize this is a leg. It's a leg of some creature and that broke off here. This could have been a knuckle or, uh, or something down here. And where that broke off, you can see, you can, can you see the claw marks there? The two claw marks? All right. See those? Right? Yes. And right at the, at the bottom here where the bone marrow came out, over there, you can see those teeth marks or claw marks right there getting to the bone marrow. I don't know if you can see those. Yes. It's gruesome. Okay. This, I'm just giving you, we're just scratching the surface here. Yeah. These claw marks and getting to the bone marrow, I have claw marks and scratch marks and bite marks on rocks and bones lying, covering the mountains here. Some of the claw marks or the teeth marks, we don't know if they were claws or fangs, you know, of creatures. Uh, some of them are like, you know, more than half a meter long um, that go into what used to be a piece of meat and now it's just a big rock. Um, so there's so much phenomenal new discovery. Yes. And the, the main thing is... Go on. Pardon? Yeah, this isn't uh, the main thing is that we, we found. Go ahead, Paul. This is in the last two years that this has been found. Yes, and this is from January, from January 2018. Uh, and um, you spoke about the different size of beings and creatures. I'm going to share this with you because this is a way I always teach people that work in the spiritual or metaphysical realms or, or sciences or fields, and that they're often you know, belittled by the self-appointed gurus in the mainstream sciences that always think they know better. Unfortunately, those are the guys with the pea brains, generally speaking. I'm sorry, I have to be rude because this is what I found over and over again unless they've stepped out of that that box and they've opened themselves up to new knowledge and information, and then obviously they, they're part of the team. But but generally speaking, the mainstream academia is very difficult to, to, to converse on this because they have to feed their families and they have to look after themselves and they can't they can't step out of the box, otherwise they lose their job. So they just toe the line and, and keep peddling the BS. So this is what you, if you are a, a spiritual worker or a channeler or a healer or a metaphysics teacher or whatever, this is a number one argument that you can use when you start having success rates with certain of your practices that you do. And that is called the argument of probability. 
And because, you know, people that work in the spiritual metaphysics realms don't necessarily understand the argument of probability, but the argument of probability is the most commonly used argument in science, physics, and mathematics, especially mathematics. And, uh, and so once you have a probability factor that supports a certain thought process or a certain activity or a certain idea, then you have scientific proof that it is most likely so. And if the probability factor is very heavily swayed in your favor, then it is so, right? So here we have a stone. Is that, can you see the stone? Yep. Now, in 2009, this stone was dug out while we were digging the foundations for the Stone Circle Museum, the new extension to it. And I remember it very well because of the color, the skin, the, the color of the stone uh, is very different. And this came out with another bunch of stones that look similar, similar color to this. And they ended up on a pile of rocks next to the driveway into Stone Circle Lodge in the museum. And uh, just recently, uh, after discovering the fossils, I was walking up the driveway when I saw the stone lying on the edge of the driveway. And I suddenly remembered, I remembered that stone and it's still lying here. And it somehow found its way to lie on the edge of the driveway. So I picked it up and I looked at it and I went, oh, my God, because now I had like a year or more experience in, in uh, recognizing fossils. I picked it up and I looked at it very quickly and I went, oh, my God, this is a finger. This is a tip of a finger of a being. These, those little lines there are actually the arteries, the veins and the arteries under the nail the nail would have been. Uh, that's the bottom. You can see the bottom of the, the that little lovely little pouch. If you look at your finger at the bottom, you see it's got that lovely curve. It's got that lovely curve at the bottom. It's exactly like that, right? And uh, then at the back, you can see the bone. That's the bone sticking out there, coming out the finger. And this piece here is just the skin and the flesh. When this finger was severed, that the, the remaining skin and flesh just fell down and flopped over the bone that was cut off here. So, and it turned into stone. So now it looks a bit weird, but that's actually the skin and flesh that just covered that side of the bone. And then what happens when you, when you cut a finger or a, uh, something like that, uh, oh, you can see very clearly the, the, the fatty, the, the muscle and the tissue underneath yeah. there, and it, just below the bone. It's nice and nice fatty tissue there. You see the, the cushion effect of the bottom wow. of the finger. So what happens when you sever a finger like that, all the blood would automatically drain to the bottom of the finger because now you know the blood pressure is gone, so the blood will drain and settle down at the bottom of the finger, which is down there. Well, there you have it. You see that black there? That, yeah, that is all the blood that drained down to the bottom of the finger and settled at the bottom of this giant finger and then and turned to stone. Now I can talk a lot more. I'm just giving you the very quick, you know, two-minute introduction to this. <clears throat> I can speak volumes about the science, the chemistry, the metamorphic process, the meta uh, the, the transmutation, the, the the fossilization, the petrification, which I must tell you is completely unknown. This is not something that you will learn in geology school or metallurgy school. They just don't know. It's not in those books at all. I had to go and discover this and study it and put the pieces of the puzzle together, what actually happens here. So tell just to finish the, the story. Sure. Just to finish the story about this finger, because I want to come back to 
the people that work in the metaphysics or, or spiritual fields how to use the argument of probability. So now I'm saying this is a finger. This is a finger of a giant, right? It's about 50 times this, about 50, 50 of my fingers will probably fit in there. It's a rough estimate. So this is 50 times larger than I am. So we're looking at about an 80 meter tall being, 80 meters. This is something unheard of, right? But um, um, so in, in the USA in 2019, um, just just more than just about a year ago now, almost a year ago, I was with a guy called John Vivenko, who's a, I met a guy called John Vivenko, who's a, a remote viewer. And John teaches remote viewers around the world. I showed him the stone and he went, wow, that's amazing. Uh, do you want me to remote view it for you? So I said, sure, please do. I'd love that. So he took a photograph of it, okay, a picture of a stone, just one picture. And he sent it off to, I believe it was about 12 people, 12 of his students around the world. And he said, please remote view this object. 24 hours later, all 12 people, or whatever the number was, came back with this story. Except they all said it was a toe, a severed toe of a giant. And the one, one person said it was either a finger, the front finger, like I said, or a toe of a very large being. So all 12 people came back. People that didn't communicate, they had no idea what they were looking for, looking at. It was a bloody rock. I mean, if I show you a picture of this, what are the statistical probabilities that you would come up with an idea that this stone is the, the severed toe of a giant? In an infinite yes. possibility, you know what I mean? In a world of infinite possibilities of this, what this could be, all of them came back saying it was a toe of a giant. So the statistical probability argument says that's what it is. There's absolutely no question about it. So we are looking at a severed toe of a giant, about 80 meters tall. And they gave me a lot more information. Some of them went into remote viewing the circumstances around the death of this being and so forth. So I'm just giving you the skinny here. So when I tell people I have... A museum filled with tools and artifacts that are ancient advanced technology and also fossils of creatures, beings, humanoids, and probably Anunnaki. I'm not exaggerating. And then when I say we have mountains covered with these fossilized body parts, I'm not exaggerating. They are everywhere. Right now, we're not allowed to travel. But as soon as we're allowed to travel, where do we need to come, Michael? Tell us about your museum. Well, the best is, is uh, just go onto my website, um, either michaeltellinger.com and click under the tours or tourism, or go to stonecircletours.co.za and, uh, and you'll see all the, 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 the different trips that we do. You can come on a full day trip or you can come for a week, you can, whatever. We, we, we put a package together for you based on your level of interest. And uh, awesome. it includes the museum. You stay at the Stone Circle Lodge with us, and um, then we go up the mountain, and we go and explore, and we go look at Adam's calendar, and we go look at the giant footprint, and those that want to go across the border to Swaziland, um, we go there to look at the Nguenya mine. So, you know, there's so much to see here, and the more we discover, the more mind-blowing it gets, and it literally shifts the time. Shifts it changes everything we think we knew about our human origins and what the world looked like in ancient times. It's, uh, it's a very different story. 
wonderful. We're coming. We're coming. <laughs> you better be ready for it. I want to ask you now a little bit about your work in uh, Ubuntu and uh, contributionism. And just as a way of introducing that, um, I have been thinking during these strange times of, of lockdown uh, around the virus, people asking questions about how we live, what kind of globalization we want, what kind of globalization we don't want, whether our supply chains are too long, and uh, reflecting a little bit about how we live on this planet. And it put me in mind of my grandparents. So just I hope you're sitting comfortably because I want to tell you about my grandma and grandpa. My grandpa was born in 1900. My grandma was born in 1911. They lived in Buckinghamshire, England. They were just outside a major town, but they were in farming country. And they lived in a little terrace of 16 semi-detached homes. I think it was 16. And they all had long strip gardens. And they made a lot of their own food. So those strip gardens, they'd all have vegetable gardens. One of them had a little orchard. One of them had goats. One of them had chickens. Uh, one of the dads had wonderful mechanical engineering skills. So he was the go-to guy for all that sort of stuff. And the way they lived, it was not, um, not so much a barter economy as a sharing economy. And the way it would work is that a, a mum would say to a child, I've got all these surplus eggs, take with you, see if your mum can use them. Or I've got a bunch of apples we're not going to use, see if your mum can use those. And it, that was a big part of how those families lived together. They were working people, they earned money, but they didn't use money for everything. Um, sharing life in that way and sharing resources was a big part of how they lived and prospered through some very testing decades. And I've been thinking about that and wondering if we need to discover our families and our neighbors in that kind of way again as we look at an uncertain future. Now, in your case, you've, you've taken that idea and you've really run with it uh, over the last 15 years and you've developed the uh, philosophy, the global movement of Ubuntu and the philosophy of contributionism and you've produced a working strategy that's fleshed out in uh, the one small town strategy. And I'd love to hear you speaking into that because I think there's a great appetite out there as people think in fresh ways about how do we live together and how do we live and prosper in these strange times. Yeah, it's a, that's really the biggest uh, story here and that needs to be addressed more urgently than anything else. You know, having this study and exploring ancient civilizations is all wonderful and it's exciting and it's a great discovery. but if we wake up tomorrow morning and we don't really have a future, we find ourselves either enslaved by the corporate structure or the royal political elite, and we just become absolute slaves in a totalitarian state, that is not good. So we need to start seriously thinking about our future. I've been doing this for the last 20 years, and especially actively for the past 15 years when I launched the concept of contributionism and started to develop that model. Um, what I found in my lectures around the world, which is, is quite staggering, um, I've always, uh, I've often, opened, when I do the Ubuntu lectures and workshops and the contributionism uh, lectures and workshops, I always start by asking, how many of us are happy with the way the world is going? 
And I must tell you, no one has ever put up their hand. No way, ever, ever, never. So it clearly tells us, and I'm talking about sometimes large audiences, like in Germany, I asked this to an audience of about 3,000 people. Not one person put up their hand. There's always some joker that's, you know, joking, but that's, but um, it clearly tells us that people are desperately and deeply unhappy with what's going on in the world. And they're worried about their world, their families, the future, and what's happening around us. And right now, we cannot ask for a better time to contemplate and look inwards and contemplate our lives and what's actually going on. Do we want to go back to this broken world, a broken society that's a dog-eat-dog where we have to work like slaves just to survive? Some people have to keep two, have two jobs and sometimes three jobs just to pay the rent, pay the bills, buy bread and, and milk so that you can keep your family and your children alive. Then, then there's an the education system that's just fallen apart that is shoving crap down our children's brains and throats, just indoctrination to create a future obedient labor force for the royal banking elite. And people are very rapidly waking up to this. And I think this, this lockdown phase has been a huge awakening and a wake-up call for people to realize and recognize this with what's going on. Especially now, look how all our rights and liberties have been just desecrated on every possible level. And those who we appointed to be our servants are now acting like slave masters and dictators, telling us what we can and cannot do, all in the name of some BS um, a scan has been pulled over our eyes. It's turning out every day. As you look, you realize this is nothing but a false flag event that was used, uh, uh, hidden behind some sort of a, a global pandemic that is none of that. Uh, it's not a pandemic. It's absolute rubbish. And uh, if people still don't, don't agree with this, please go and do some more research on this and you realize what I'm talking about. So this is just now, it got to us, it, like it's screaming in our faces, screaming at us, saying, wake up, humans, wake up. You're being abused and enslaved on every possible level. So this is a good time to present a solution because more and more people are doing research. More and more people are discovering what I call the terrible truth, the terrible truth of our history, our origins, how we've been manipulated for thousands and thousands of years. And they discover the truth about the banking elite and how they run the world, how they control the governments and the different countries and the puppet master governments. And suddenly people start get uh, get to get depressed because they're finding more and more of this really depressing and overwhelming information. And then they feel depressed and trapped and, and go, oh, my God. How do we get out of this? There's no way out of this. Well, this is where the one small town strategy and the philosophy of contributionism comes to the rescue. It is a plan and a solution for a way out. It is a fully evolved plan and a solution to get us out of this mess. All it's going to take for a critical mass of people to see this solution, the one small town solution, how simple it is, how quickly we can implement this, and how quickly we can turn this incredibly insane world of ours around and turn it into a place of prosperity and abundance for every single one of us. And that's really what I need to stress here. Every single living, breathing human being, whether they want to participate or not want to participate, because those that participate will actually make it beautiful and acceptable for all those that don't want to participate. That's how inclusive the system is. So the 
The system of contributionism, uh, contributionism has evolved, as you mentioned, since when I first brought up the idea and I started to imagine a world without money and that slowly evolved. Well, how would, what, we, what would we do if money didn't exist? And that's when I realized uh, by researching origins of humankind, when money was inserted into humanity, when the first forms of money suddenly appeared and it's all in in line with the emergence of the first royal bloodlines, the first royal or um, high priest kings that suddenly emerged out of nowhere. Some uh, this, and we don't really know when this was, but the first time we read about it in the Sumerian texts is about six thousand years ago, when these first priest kings appear out of nowhere, and they were appointed by the gods. The Sumerian texts tell us that after the flood. So it's uh, this 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 emergence of the money as we know it today, the money system comes after the flood because that's when the Sumerian texts tell us um, the the um, royalty was um, or the first kingdoms were were uh, descended from from um, from heaven to earth. Uh, the first royal bloodlines descended from heaven to earth, and the first priest kings were appointed by the gods to rule over humanity. And this is where we suddenly see the appearance of the first royal bloodlines. And what did these first priest kings do? They built their huge temples, uh, impenetrable temples to protect themselves. And they were given fierce weapons, very advanced weapons and technology with which they could smite and kill the people if the people did not want to obey. And you start to see the absolute draconian and totalitarian um assault on humanity, and suddenly these priest kings owned all the land, and all the people became their subjects, and they had to work the land for the kings, and if they didn't, they would get smited, and in return, they'd get some privileges and some special treatment, and uh, and that's when they started to issue the first forms of money, and these first priest kings in their temples were issuing forms of money on clay tablets. In exactly the same style and fashion, we print money on paper today in forms of negotiable instruments, bills of exchange, promissory notes, and checks that are collectively known as negotiable instruments. This is what you can find in the Sumerian text some 6,000 years ago. That's how far back this Babylonian black magic money system goes when it was inserted into humanity as a fully evolved and a complete propaganda philosophy to entrap and enslave humanity. It's a spectacular revelation. And that's when I realized that we don't need money. Get rid of money, we'll get rid of the spell and the rid of the, the, the enslavement by the Rothschild banking empire. Fast forward from 6,000 years ago to about uh, the 1760s, when the Rothschild empire suddenly, the Rothschilds suddenly immerse themselves into this and they take this money system that was used then that was getting a little confusing and a little little gray around the edges and they took that and they perfected it again and that's when we see the rise of the the Rothschild banking empire that went that first covered all of Europe uh, the late uh, 1700s and then in, right through the 1800s they literally took over the world with their banks all over Europe first of all and then obviously the early 1900s they launched it into America, and by 1913, they established the Federal Bank, a Reserve Bank of the United States, and that was it. That was the the, the world was so done. This, the world. So yeah. this involved the the centralization of generation of money and control over money. Yeah, 
And today, the bankers, the Rothschild banking empire that obviously involves the Rockefellers, the Morgans, the, the Warburgs, the Schiffs, the, the, there's all these banking families that belong to this. So, but it's, it's, it all forms falls under the Rothschild banking umbrella. And this is all controlled and managed and run from the city of London, which has got nothing to do with London town or the, 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 the you know, London as we know it. City of London is a square mile inside the, the, the heart of, of London. And that's a separate entity to itself. It's like the Vatican City inside of London and uh, or, or uh, Washington, D.C., that are separate independent states within countries. And uh, and it's just a spectacular deception on every level. So I, when I realized this, I started to imagine a world where money doesn't exist and how things would work. And it suddenly uh, became a, an incredible journey of discovery, where I had a, a joyful journey of discovery that suddenly made me realize, oh, my God, when we remove money from the system, suddenly everything becomes possible. Because money is no longer a hurdle to progress. Money is no longer the hurdle to people's dreams, to doing this or building that or achieving this or achieving that. All I had to figure out is how are people going to be able to achieve that without money? And by, by instead of fighting each other and competing, competition in a, in a capitalist system, by cooperating and collaborating to support each other so that they can all individually and collectively achieve their dreams and, their, and, and prosperity and abundance for everybody in their community. And that's when the term contributionism came from, where people contribute their skills and talents for the greater benefit of everyone in their community while really perfecting themselves and while sharing their skills and talents uh, to the best of their ability for their own satisfaction, not for anybody else's, for their own satisfaction. And if they are happy with what they do, if they are using their natural gifts and talents that they're born with, they are happy, they feel happy, they feel uh, respected and reward and loved because of what they contribute to society. And this became an, uh, a, a, the model upon which contributionism and then eventually the one small town strategy was built and it has evolved over 15 years so by 2016 after getting involved in politics and uh, running in three political elections in South Africa 2012 2014 and 2016 and then also in the UK in two two um, constituencies in 2015 in Australia we ran um uh, ran one of the Ubuntu guys ran for governor of New South Wales, and we almost launched in Canada and in the USA. At which point I realized, hold on, we're 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 going about this the wrong way, because at that stage it became very obvious that the political beast cannot be beaten. Uh, however, having said that, Donald Trump has just done that in the USA, so maybe it can be beaten, but it comes with billions of dollars uh, and and a whole army around you. Uh, and and many other people that work with you. Unfortunately, I did not have that. Uh, when I realized that the outcome of political um, political votes and and elections is completely and utterly controlled and manipulated, and I realized that we cannot continue fighting the system or opposing the system. The moment we go into politics, um, we uh, we become an opposition party. And the concept and the philosophy of opposition, opposing, resisting, this leads to violence, and that is not a solution. And that's when I realized that Buckminster Fuller gave us a very uh, obvious answer to it a long time ago. I didn't necessarily follow Buckminster Fuller, but I realized that he had already thought of it by the time I thought of it. Um, and he, Buckminster Fuller said that you can't, uh, you can't uh, change the system by fighting it. 
you change a system by creating another system that makes the existing system obsolete. And that's exactly what the one small town strategy and implementation does. It doesn't fight the current political system, doesn't fight the money system or the banking or the legal system because you can't beat them. And for anyone that's tried to do this, you will know very clearly, it takes up years of your life, it chews up all your money, and eventually you lose. You can't beat the system because <laughs> they built in all the measures and controls that you can never beat them because they created the system and they control the system. But, can you tell us what, uh, yeah. what are the practicalities of the one small town strategy? Because you've, you've made this work at a local level, haven't you? No, not yet. Well, I'll explain to you what we've done. Um, so what, in essence, what the One Small Town Strategy does, it uses the tools of enslavement as tools of liberation. So no opposition, no violence, no conflict. We take everything they throw at us and we turn it around like martial arts. You take the energy thrown at you. You don't resist it. You don't try and stop it. You channel that energy around, you bend it around, and you make it work for you. For for your community, and for what you want to do. And that became the most liberating thought that I could have ever had. Everything became crystal clear. Using the tools of enslavement as tools of liberation for the benefit of everyone in our community. And the one small town is the perfect platform and the model to do this on. The cities are too big, too many people, too many conflicts and different ideas. In a small town, people tend to know each other. It's much easier to, to call a town meeting. Even if 10% of the people arrive, you have, a, you have a critical mass of the people in the town that are already aware of what you plan to do. And the, basically, the one small town uses the money system. It uses the greed of capitalism. It the incentives or the attraction of greed of investors that will want to invest in this because it pre presents an incredibly lucrative opportunity for the investors. It uses the legal system to help you so nobody can topple you. And, and it uses the political system without getting involved in politics. I mean, isn't that just spectacular? Without doing, without resisting any of those things that normally destroy our lives, we are now using those things to improve our lives. Because when I say using the political system, I mean we use a mayor of a town who's a politically elected individual. And when the mayor goes with our one small town strategy, in essence, we have hijacked the political system to work with us and with the one small town implementation. And all it is, very, very simple. We have new technology and this whole one small town strategy is built on the on the uh, principle of bringing in our own supply of electricity to the small town. We have this new technology. It is unbelievable. It's brand new technology that's never been seen. And uh, we can scale this uh, electricity supply from anything from you know, 50 kilowatts to 100 kilowatts up to many, many megawatts. Uh, doesn't matter how big the town is. If you need 100 megawatts, we can scale, scale it up to that. It's like stacking Lego blocks of 100 kilowatt uh, generators together. So... All we need to do is find one conscious mayor or a conscious investor who wants to do this, and the rest will fall like dominoes. Because the moment we implement our electricity device and we now own the electricity, all the money that we pay towards the monthly electricity costs no longer go off to some national provider. That money now stays in our town. And just that as a foundation, just that, without even bringing in investors, 
Just the monthly electricity payments that we make as a community is enough to launch many projects, many businesses, all the activities we need, all the all the upgrades and maintenance of the towns and the small towns especially um, are just falling, breaking up so badly because there's never enough money to do this or fix that or maintain the town. Everything changes overnight. And then it just gets better and better from there. So uh, we obviously then look at the industrial opportunity, the farms and the factories that are standing idle we bring in the right people with the right skills and expertise to come and run and reopen those factories and run and manage those farms and run and manage that uh, engineering company or that tech business. And we can choose any business that we want to start. And every business we start is co-owned by the people of that community. All the people have to do. And this is where the contributionism philosophy shows you how powerful it is. Everybody is requested to contribute three hours a week. That's it, three hours a week. There are 168 hours in a week. You have to contribute three hours of that. Everybody's got three hours a week. But the model for One Small Town was developed in such a way that even if a small percentage of the people participate, because this is often a question, well, how are you going to make everyone to participate? No, we don't expect everyone to participate. We expect in the beginning a small percentage to participate. But the model was that premise. Even if a small percentage of people participate, even if it's 5%, there's still enough people that contribute three hours a week. That gives us hundreds, if not thousands of uh, hours of labor, free labor every week. Now, this is where you start. You have to start thinking outside the box because this has never been done before. It's never been done before because for 6,000 years, we've been prevented from doing this. And we have to stop this, put a stop to that abuse at some stage. The, the main thing we do here is we use the tools of enslavement, but we change one main thing. We change competition into cooperation and collaboration. No more competition because competition just will rip our community apart as it, as it has ripped the world apart. You start, you know, brother against brother, killing each other, trying to outsmart the other one and make more money than the other one. Companies trying to uh, compete and beat each other. Money is bought by the others. Competition is not a solution. It is a recipe for division and disaster and, and bloodshed and violence. The moment we start to compete and cooperate and collaborate, I mean, once we, once we start collaborating and cooperating on every level, everything becomes possible. And that... That cooperation and collaboration together with the three hours of service contributed by all the people of the town, that is the main attraction to the investors who find it an irresistible investment uh, opportunity because they've got free labor. They've got everyone is on your side. Everybody uh, that contributes three hours a week is a, is a co-owner of that business that you've invested it invested in. So they're obviously not going to do anything to run that business down. They're going to do everything to make that business succeed. And we're not going to have 20 bakeries in our town or five dairies or 20 engineering companies. We're going to have one engineering company and we all work together to make that engineering company the best there possibly is. And anything we choose to do, we then do within that the frame, the, the scope of that engineering company. And that is the investment attraction for the conscious investors. The, yes. When you spend the numbers and the model for this, it is quite spectacular. No matter which way you stack it, the contributionist model, as I've explained it, outlined it here, 
always comes out several times, many, many fault times, more successful and lucrative and abundant and profitable than any capitalist model that you try and run alongside it. So it is just a matter of us really finding that first town, that first mayor that has had enough and that just decides this is what I'm going to do and that mayor becomes the voice and the face of this new One Small Town initiative because that itself will bring in the conscious investors and will bring in the conscious scientists, the inventors, the healers, all the other people that will bring incredible skills to the town that will then be amplified so that it can be shared, not shared, so that we can share the, the, the abundance that we create with, with the world. We sell that, obviously, and the town becomes incredibly wealthy. So while we're making money from all our businesses... so Go ahead, Paul. If I were a, a mayor of a regional town and I was aware that Agenda 21 means that uh, my federal government or my state government is never going to reinvest in my district or region. I would be so in, so attracted to what you're talking about because I'd have a heart for my community. I would be wanting to find models that make my local community thrive as it did 40 years ago, 100 years ago. It's ridiculous that we have towns with structures that are not viable now, that were viable then, if I were a mayor in that position, I would be calling you on the phone. If I were an investor, I'd be interested because, as you say, you would have free labor, an immediate market that would be very warm. And it's not pure localism because if you get something going that is functional, producing something that's needed, then you've got a resource that your town has that positions you well in, in the wider economy. So there's so much to be said. Yeah. About. So where can all the mayors of the world go, Michael, to find out more about Ubuntu and uh, the One Small Town strategy? Just uh, the, the best thing, go to ubuntuplanet.org or onesmalltown.org. They both go to the same website, our, our main website, uh, ubuntuplanet.onesmalltown.org. Uh, read the information there, watch the videos. And then email me. Just email me. Say, I want to go. We have the energy technology, the generators on standby. We can start manufacturing them. All we need is a mayor to sign because when the mayor signs with us, that gives us the capacity to raise the finance for the generators because we're not going to start manufacturing the generators. We don't have the money. We've got the technology. It's working. It's running. Everything works. But I don't have a, a couple of million dollars to start manufacturing them and then sitting with it because we can't introduce these generators into mainstream society because they're just going to get ripped apart. They're going to get. We're going to get uh, taken out by the, the the big guys. We can only inject it into society when it belongs to the community. So in essence, we're giving the community the generator. It belongs to the people of that town. It can never be taken away from them. So as soon as they've paid it off, which will maybe take two or three years, once it's paid off, that electricity is free to that community. And that, that gets even better. So the mayors can just contact me directly. We can, we can talk about it. We can launch this very quickly. Um, but my main message to the people watching this is, is go onto our, web, our website, watch the videos, really internalize it, learn as much as you can so it becomes part of your DNA, your genetic makeup, that you know how it works. You don't, you don't think you know how it works. You must absolutely know how this thing works. And you'll start finding your own answers to all the problems because I call the one small town uh, solution for all the problems we face as the human race. Any problem you throw into a one small town situation always 
comes up with the most positive solution that that benefits the whole of the community because that's how it works. It's that simple. Um, so literally go onto the Ubuntu Planet website, read as much as you can, read the letter to the mayor, the proposal to the mayor, because in there you can get a, a sense of what the mayor has offered. And um, and not only that, you know, the, the first mayor in every, in every country, the offer to any mayor in any country, the first town that goes with us, we will also set up the manufacturing plant of the generators. This is new technology generators. The expected turnover of the generator manufacturing plant is going to be a minimum of $30 million a month, a minimum. Uh, you can just imagine what that kind of turnover for a small town will do. <laughs> so that's a little carrot that we're dangling for the mayors to come out of hiding. Absolutely. We're going to have to sign off in a moment, but uh, before we do that, I want to ask Michael, what's happening next for you? I know it's uh, it's your birthday tomorrow, so happy birthday for tomorrow. Many happy, I hope you have a wonderful day. What's next for you? Uh, next for me is really um, uh, manifesting this beautiful reality, co-creating this beautiful reality of a one small town that's filled with prosperity and abundance for all its people, creating a beautiful future for all the children. The mayors and the investors that have invested into this will invest into a beautiful, secure future for your children and your, all your offspring into the future. If we don't do this, our children are, gonna, are going to inherit a world of misery, slavery, disease, and absolute abuse of all our human rights and liberties. They, we cannot continue like we are. We have to go this other route. And, uh, and if one small town might not be the final solution, at least it is a very, very obvious and a lucrative stepping stone in the next phase for where we should go, and it will evolve itself from there. But at least we will liberate humanity, and that's really going. I believe we are very close to finding that conscious millionaire or billionaire that knows that the investment opportunities in the world are drying up very quickly and realizing that one small town is the new lucrative investment opportunity and not only doing that, securing the future for your family and your and your children. Absolutely. Amen to that. Michael Tellinger, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, you're an absolute inspiration. Um, we'll do us again sometime. Thank you very much, Paul. Great talking to you. Um, goodbye to all your listeners and viewers. Till next time. Likewise. Thanks, Paul, thank you. Michael, coming on the show. Um, I just want to ask you a quick question, if you don't mind. It's um, I noticed earlier on that you touched on high-frequency technology in cell towers, and I just wondered if you had any thoughts on the legitimacy of people's concerns with the ongoing rollout of 5G tech at the minute. Oh, it's, it's not. It's not. It's a, It's an absolute assault on on. It. It's like like. Uh, it's genocide. 5G is just a tool to create genocide. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I've no. There's no doubt in my mind that the 5G towers are being developed in conjunction with the vaccines that are being planned, with all the toxins and the micro bots and micro whatever particles they're putting into the vaccines, so that once we inject it with the vaccine, they have total and utter control over you through the the frequencies and the 5G uh, technology. It is a disgusting um, genocide onslaught against humanity. And Michael, how is it working where you are? Is there much of a resistance against the 5G towers in South uh, Africa? 
No, well, there is, but you know, the the conscious community in South Africa is not that big. You know, we have a large unemployed population that the ANC has just decimated since 1995. Uh, so uh, there's a there's a there's a very high level of frustration among the youth, the black, especially the black youth in South Africa. Uh, they're confused. They lost. They have no idea what's going on. They just know that there's something is desperately wrong, but they don't know what to do. So I've been sharing very. Yeah, as as anxiously and as quickly as I can, um, the the video town implementation strategy into as many youth movements as I can, um, and I just hope that it finds as many young black South Africans that are living in the townships because once they embrace this and they know that there's a way out, it's going to be very difficult to 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 kill their dream, um, and hopefully that that's going to happen very soon. But I do believe that we are very close to finding a mayor um, or a, a billionaire that says, let's do it. And remember, money talks. If you arrive in a small town and say, hey, I've got $50 million to invest in your town, everybody's going to be eating out of your hand, including the freaking mayor. So, Yeah, absolutely. So, so this, is what I call, this, this, this is what I call using the tools of enslavement as tools of liberation. We will use money to liberate the people because we can't do it without money. Yeah. And it's not, it's not anti-capitalism. It's, it's healthy capitalism. Oh, it is. This is what's going to happen, Paul. The, the town will become so rich and so successful with all its innovation, technology, healthcare, uh, exporting just so much stuff and making not just millions but billions of dollars. Right, you've got to equate a town of ten thousand people to a corporation of about five thousand employees. That's yeah. that's the equivalent because that's where it balances. Now, any corporation with five thousand employees or more, the average turnover is about a billion dollars a year, from one to six billion dollars a year. So. Imagine when we start comparing our town with all the free, free labor we have and the innovation technology and the inventors that are drawn to our town because of these opportunities. Our town will become like a, a, a united labor force that creates, manifests, invents, builds, exports, anything imaginable that's better, stronger, lasts longer than anything else will become the most fierce competitor to any pharmaceutical company, any manufacturing, any IT, computer, engineering company. And we will make billions of dollars for our little town. But that money will come into people's pockets and everything is free. Everything is available for the people in our town for free as long as they contribute their three hours a week. So we're making all this money, but we're not using the money. And that's when people realize that money does nothing. People do everything. The vaccine agenda is something that concerns you as well. Oh, absolutely. Whatever happens, we, we need to stop it. Luckily, Donald Trump is, is on our side and he's he's working away at stopping it. So, you know, if you read between the lines, he's, he's I don't think he's uh, he's going to let the Americans get or the, the Bill Gates gang get away with that. Yeah, well, I saw your last video on it, actually. Oh, he's, he's put something in to take back the Fed. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah, it's that's the biggest event in the last two hundred and fifty years. It's it's yeah. it's that the reason you haven't heard anything about it is because the media is all controlled by the Rothschilds. So they're not gonna they're not gonna um, um, 
promote the idea that their biggest central bank was stolen by the president. That's just not, you're not going to see that on any news. It's, it's a really important move. I was going to ask, relative to what you were just talking about, um, have you seen the Michael Moore movie, uh, Hymn to Capitalism? Michael Moore? No. I don't like Michael Moore. He's just a, I don't like him at all. I don't like his, the way his brain works. I don't, don't like the way like he's, he the puts things forward. He, he, yeah. The reason I mention it is that at the end, in the extra features of that movie, he right. identifies a number of local towns, America, where they have uh, kind of done a, a UDI and started finding ways of creating local economy and uh, looking after themselves. And those kind of communities, I think, would be okay. really ripe with a one small town strategy. And it just might be interesting to identify which those towns are because it's involved state banks acting differently. It's involved mayors taking charge once again of their local communities. And those are the kind of communities that I think would really jump at the model that you've developed in one small town. Yeah. You don't have to watch Michael Moore, but you go straight to the extra features and just find out where those towns are and uh, you might find something really interesting um, to work with there. So what do you call Hail to Capitalism? I think it was called uh, A Hymn to Capitalism. Okay, A Hymn. And um, it was show what it, it, the best thing about it was showing these local uh, examples of uh, stakeholder companies where uh, everyone gets paid the same thing. They're all working together. They're all sharing in the profits of the company. And then these extra features that talk about these local towns that have found ways of supporting themselves. And that was the thing that really inspired me. Okay, that's great. Um, I will ask uh, my um, USA Ubuntu um, representative, uh, Travis, who manages it in the USA, ask, ask him to look into it and, and start contacting those mayors. Yeah, they would be so ready for what you're talking about. Yeah, that's great. That's 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 a great lead. <clears throat> yeah. Look, the moment this goes, it's just going to be a domino effect. It's, you can't. You're not going to be able to stop it. Uh, it's just it's gonna just gonna run away with itself, and the people in other towns are gonna want the same. The mayors in other towns are gonna yeah. want to do the same. It's not gonna stop it. So, guys, I'm gonna I'm gonna say goodbye if you don't mind. I've got to go and go go to Stone Circle and and just make sure that things are okay there because I had a little hiccup there yesterday. <clears throat> no, thank you so much for joining us today, Michael. It's been absolutely fantastic and uh, really inspiring. It's a pleasure, Paul. Lovely talking to you. And um, <clears throat> Tony, uh, great to meet you. Thank you. And uh, just, you know, if you want to chat again, let me know.